I'll express your appreciation to Joyce. Joyce Mann's on the piano. Joyce, for several years, she couldn't make it last year, but she's been the conference pianist. She lives in Tucson, Arizona, so, you know, she's not our, our regular, regular pianist. Um, also, another announcement at, uh, don't, uh, at 1 o'clock today, coming back from your lunch break, uh, Pastor Eliezer Quieros. Where's Eliezer? He's not here yet. He will be... Um, He's going to be uh, speaking, or wait a minute, he'll be speaking along with Brad Mastin, uh, about, and Brad will be talking about Camparete, and uh, so a little bit about the ministry that we've got going on in Brazil. I'll need to do this again because there's a lot of late sleepers this morning. A little folding of the hands, a little slumber. Okay. Um, I have a a prayer request this morning. This last Sunday, it's not the thread I need. That's the thread I need. This last Sunday, there were two United States Marines who were killed in action in Iraq. One of them's name, and I'm trying to find his name now, is Cap. He was a captain. His name was Moises Navas. His best friend was another captain, Marine Raider, named William Langridge. Some of you may remember and have been praying for uh, him, and last summer his uh, baby was born, and many of us have been praying for him. His son Atticus with a congen- was born with a congenital heart defect. He has been on our prayer prayer list. His his family is part of our sort of extended family. His William's father is uh, the business partner of Alan Westfall. So we know the family. There's a lot. Some of you know some of the other related, but this is William's best friend, uh, Mo, and he was killed in action, and he was a st- strong believer. And according to the information I've been given, there are few in the Marine Raiders that are believers. So we need to pray that with his funeral and everything, that the Lord will be honored and the gospel will be made uh, very, very clear. Uh, Mo had, Captain Moises Navas had a Purple Heart, two Navy and Marine Corps Commendation Medals, Navy and Marine Corps Achievement Medal, two Combat Action Ribbons, the Army uh, Valorous Unit Award and four Good Conduct medals, along with two humanitarian service medals, and it just goes on. This was a real warrior and and hero, and so we need to be in prayer for him, his wife, and four children who will be uh, missing him for the rest of their lives. He had three sons and and one daughter, so we need to be in in uh, in prayer for him and his family. And this morning, William. Uh, who was with his wife when they came to tell her and was uh, there this morning to when she had formed their children. And now he is flying to New Jersey as they uh, bring his, the uh, Captain Navas's remains back. So this was what I was greeted with when I woke up this morning. My heart's heavy for them. So we need to be, uh, be in prayer 
be in prayer for them. So as we open in prayer today, we'll begin with some with uh, silent prayer. Make sure we take the opportunity to confess sin if necessary, and to be in, continue to be in prayer uh, for this family. You can go and find uh, more information about this. It's been reported in detail on Fox News, so you can go go there and read about this situation. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. And I'll open in prayer after a few moments. Our Father, we know that you are the God of all comfort and that we go through many heartaches in this life. We walk through the valley of the shadow of death. And we face and surmount so many challenges and adversities and tribulation in life because we know you're faithful to us and you're faithful to your word. And we pray for Captain Navas. We pray for his, his family, his uh, wife who is left behind with their four children. And we know that they are all believers and we rejoice at his promotion to be face to face with you. But our hearts are also heavy because of the grief that they will go through. But it is not a grief like those who have no hope. And there is great hope in that family. And we know that his death has a purpose. And we pray that it will be used to make the gospel clear to his uh, comrades, to his colleagues, to those who served with him and under him, and that they will come to know the saving grace that you have provided for us through Christ our Lord. And Father, we just pray that the, those who speak at his service will make the gospel clear. Father, we thank you that we have this opportunity today once again to put our focus and attention upon you and upon your word, to be reminded of your goodness, your grace, your uniqueness, and Father, the fact that we need to walk desperately dependent upon you moment by moment. And Father, we pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Amen. We're going to begin with hymn number 366, I Surrender All. And then when we conclude that, then Dr. Ross will come up and speak to us. He, I did not announce this earlier. He said, just call me Alan. Okay. So, Alan will come forward, and uh, he'll uh, speak this morning at the this session, and then at the at the next session. Scott. Yes. 
morning, everyone. If I were teaching my ordinary routine at the seminary, the class would be half over by now. So <laughs> it's, uh, they're not all very early persons, but at the same time, uh, they are required to be there. Um, <clears throat> you have a choice, and you're not even facing an exam when you get here. This is free grace, I guess. Um, <laughs> let's begin with prayer. Father in heaven, we are thankful for the gift that you have given us to, to come into your presence and to commune with you and with one another, and all of it um, as, a, uh, as a spirit of thanksgiving for all that you have given to us and all of it within the range of the hope of glory. And I pray, Lord, that our time today would be convicting and uplifting as we seek to grow in grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. And I pray these things in his name. Amen. Amen. We shall be beginning this morning with the passage in Malachi. Malachi is, uh, in some ways, it's the James of the Old Testament. Um, everybody in ministry, I think, should read this book every year and um, maybe pray their way through it. I was thinking when we were singing in connection with the message today, the people in Malachi 1 would probably only be able to say, I surrender some. Um, <laughs> but certainly not all. I don't, I'm not a bookseller. I don't really come to churches uh, pushing the books, but the little book that I have, and you can look through it on Malachi, is not exactly a straightforward commentary. Uh, it is written for, I mean, anybody can read it. It is a commentary. But it is laid out in a lot more detail, and it is a way that I use in my class to teach the students how to start with the text and do the exegesis and move towards the theology and develop the exposition and come out with the sermon. And so if you're reading that, it's going to take you for each, each passage in the book, it's going to take you through those steps one by one. So there will be more Hebrew words in that commentary. Uh, because it's meant to be training people who are in uh, in preparation for ministry. Uh, if you don't want the first part, you can just skip over that and read the commentary on each uh, each passage because it's put then into a final form. My problem has always been with commentaries that they are commentaries. Uh, they are lists of comments, and uh, yet you're not your job isn't through if you just speak verse by verse by verse through and make comments, you have to put it together. You have to tie it into theology. You have to connect it to the rest of Scripture. Uh, and you have to, of course, apply the passage to our experience. And that's a little bit more of a challenge when you're dealing with some Old Testament passages. Malachi, as you probably know, or maybe not, is uh, much later. I think some people people in the church think all the prophets that you read in the Old Testament, they regularly got together for conferences like this. Um, 
No, Malachi is probably to be dated somewhere between the return of Ezra in 454 and Nehemiah in 444. So you can put them somewhere around 450 B.C. and there's not much scripture left to be written. Uh, Chronicles, maybe, but uh, certainly he comes in that period. And the way we decide that is because all the various sins that he is dealing with are exactly what Ezra and Nehemiah are dealing with. Uh, And uh, you're not dealing in this book with... uh, the main problem of the Old Testament before the exile, and that was rampant idolatry. The Babylonian captivity purged idolatry out of the nation. But what came back, it's like in Jesus' little saying that woman swept the house and gets rid of the demon and whatever, but seven worse ones come back in. Um, What came back instead from the captivity was eventually self-righteous legalism. It's much easier to deal with an idolater because at least he knows he wants some spiritual help. But a self-righteous legalist like a Pharisee, your task is harder. You've got to convince him he needs help, uh, convince him that there is a problem there. Well, Malachi is dealing with a particularly difficult audience. I don't know, you might have some people in your congregation like this, but fortunately they're polite enough not to do what this crowd does because every time Malachi says something, they challenge it, prove it, show me. Why do you say that? You know, and so they're not a very, uh, not a very amenable group to work with. The passage we're dealing with is the first of the major sermons in the book, and this one is on worship. And there's some very, very serious problems with their worship. It's not all the problem that all the problem belongs to the people. Uh, They are certainly guilty of their false or corrupt worship. But as you continue in the book, which we will not do this morning, and you get to chapter 2, then you realize that the real problem must be laid at the feet of the priests. Because in chapter 2, verses 1 through 9, They are talking about the ministry of the priesthood, and that ministry was supposed to begin with the the minister uh, fearing the Lord, obeying the Lord, walking in his ways, teaching the truth, teaching faithfully the Word of God, turning many people to righteousness. It's a marvelous chapter of what ministry is all about. not, no gimmicks. It's just ministry. There was in, when I was teaching for a while in, uh, in Dallas, but I was also at the same time an adjunct professor at Perkins Seminary in SMU, which was not as conservative as Dallas, but um, <laughs> they had a, uh, it was very interesting how it worked. They had a a story in one of their Methodist papers. A young man had graduated from a Methodist seminary and had been sent. He was an African-American student, and this was very racial. We know this. He was sent to a rural church that had been in existence for 125 years, and it had less members now than it had when it started. And everybody walked away from it. And so... As the Methodist church works, he gets assigned to this church. 
and uh, nobody paid any attention to it, uh, send them down there, fine. About a year and a half later, they get news that that church is in a building program. <laughs> something, something has gone differently. So now it's time to do an article on him in the uh, newsletter. And they asked him what his secret was. And he says, there's no secret. He said, I only did what I felt you needed to do. He says, I preach the word, I pray for the people, and I'm available. That's it. All the methods and gimmicks and whatever can't match that. Um, I ran into a similar problem when I was in Africa. There was a conference of Anglican theologians, and they wanted two uh, professors from each Anglican seminary in the U.S., Canada, and Africa come together for this conference. And what a mix. <laughs> really interesting. And um, one of the things that struck us the most was that we were meeting in Tanzania. Tanzania was planting 30 new churches every month. <laughs> Quite incredible. And uh, one of the professors from General Seminary in New York, very liberal, um, he made some very ridiculous statements along the way, but when the bishop of this province in Tanzania was presenting their needs and so on, and they were growing so fast, he asked him, you know, the same question, what's your secret? And uh, this guy said, we don't have a secret. He says, we tell people that they are sinners, that Christ is the Son of God and he paid for their sins, and if they believe in him, they'll be forgiven and have eternal life. <laughs> this guy wouldn't have that. He says, no, no, he says, I don't mean that. He says, I want to know what your secret is. Um, no, it's the Word and the power of the Holy Spirit but if the person is ministering the word incorrectly, um, that can have an effect of quenching the Holy Spirit. And when you read it through chapter 2 of Malachi, you realize the real problem is that, um, that these priests were showing respect of persons. They had one application for some people, one application for another group, and so on. And um, that... Uh, that was giving people the license to disobey what the scriptures had said. Um, I don't know the mentality that is behind here. There's, there was a great movie that came out a good number of years ago now, and I'm not even sure you can still get it. It was a stage play to start with in Broadway, but then it became a movie called Mass Appeal. You may have seen it somewhere. If you ever get a chance to see it, it's worth watching. Um, Jack Lemmon is the star, and he plays a Roman Catholic priest in Chicago. And he is given a seminary student to train in ministry. <laughs> and they are at odds from the very beginning. And uh, the young man comes in with all the idealism and all the recent things, and he's full of energy. And Jack is always trying to calm him down, you know, to calm him down. And uh, at the very end, uh, they they come to reality, a moment of truth, and the priest, played by Lemon, says, says, I realize I need this congregation more than they need me. <laughs> That's a very dangerous place to be in. Uh, but the prophets didn't have that mentality. Keep in mind, these are not clergy. 
prophets were probably persona non grata. That when they showed up in the temple service, the priest might have had apoplexy because they never show up to say, you're doing a good job, keep up the work. Uh, That's not it. And Malachi is very sharp in his message, but he's a great preacher. You could learn a lot about an homiletical arrangement of a sermon and see how he does it. So we're going to look at chapter 1 and verses 6 through the end of the chapter. Um, he will, the message will be easy to follow. He will get their attention, then he'll make a charge against them, and then he will give them advice, and then he'll repeat the second statement of the charge and give advice on that and warn them what happens if they don't take the advice. So it's very easy. These are sermons, very easy to outline them. It's a lot easier to preach a prophetic oracle because it's a sermon and you've got all the basic arrangement done for you. He starts the sermon to be getting their attention. A son honors his father and a servant his master. And I can just imagine in the minds of the people, yeah, amen, that's right. You know, this is what, this is what we believe, um, so that a son has to honor his father. That's clear in the Ten Commandments. They love this. But then he speaks, and of course the prophet is speaking the word of the Lord. The word of the Lord is on his lips, and he is declaring it in the first person. If I am a father... Where is my honor? If I am a master, where is the respect due me? Says the Lord of hosts. It is you, O priests, who are despising my name. All of a sudden, the whole positive atmosphere kind of hits a brick wall uh, because now the Lord who is addressed as the Lord of hosts, which means the Lord of armies, usually when that is the description given of the Lord, it is a judgment passage. It is a denunciation of something that is going wrong, and they are confronting the power of heaven by challenging him. So here, if I'm a father, in the Old Testament, the the word father is used for God, and... and, um, it's not really, you've got to get into the clear understanding of this. The word father is used in the Old Testament in the sense of creator and covenant maker. Uh, it's, uh, we get off on all kinds of other little relevant ideas that might be helpful, but those are the ways it's used, that uh, he is the sovereign creator, he's the father, he is also the one who makes the covenant. All the covenants in the Bible are connected in terms of father-son. Go back to uh, Exodus. Um, The nation of Israel, God says, this is my son. And he tells Pharaoh, you let my son go or I'll kill your son. He's playing on the word son there and get the contrast. Davidic covenant, uh, God says, I will be to him a father, he will be to me a son. That's the relationship of a covenant. And in the New Testament... Um, by God's grace, we have been given the the right and the privilege to be called the sons or the children of God, and we address him as our father. It's the language of covenant. These are the covenant people, and God is reminding them, I'm your father, and I'm also your master. I'm your Lord. 
Where's the honor? Where's the fear that is due to me? You want it in your homes from your children. I want it from you. And it hasn't been there. And then he lays on them a very harsh criticism. O priests, it is you who are despising my name. This would have annoyed them probably at first until he gets into the details. Uh, You really have to work with words in Malachi and make sure you know what he's talking about. Despising something, that word in the language means to treat something as worthless. You look down your nose at it. Um, uh, A good illustration is Esau. He sells the birthright for a bowl of lentil soup. And at the end it says this is because he despised the blessing. It wasn't any use to him. He's, he's the good old boy, outdoor type, whatever. He's not, he doesn't have time for these kinds of things, and so he'd rather have a bowl of soup than to have the inheritance. But uh, that's a profane person. He lives for here and now and uh, not considering things that are really of value. But uh, these people are despising, treating as worthless, the name now, when you're really dealing with the Old Testament, you really have to be careful on when, what they mean by the name of the Lord. Uh, it, when they refer to the name of the Lord, it's not referring to the literal name Yahweh. Because if you said name of Yahweh means the Yahweh of Yahweh, it makes no sense. Name is the descriptive attributes, the qualities, the characteristics um, yeah, if somebody comes to seminary and he makes a name for himself, that's the kind of word we're talking about. And you know this from the Bible. Uh, for the Messiah, his name will be Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting. That's not his name. Those are descriptions of his nature, his character. So if in the Psalms you're told, praise the name of the Lord, you'll find the Psalms will then go into details. He's faithful, he's merciful, he's loving, he's gracious, and whatever. That's the name of the Lord. And so what they are saying here in this text is that these priests of all people are treating the character, the nature of God as worthless. Those are hard words. And of course the priests are not going to like this and they will deny it. I mean, they say the liturgy very nicely. They say the prayers very well. They uh, lead the service and make the sacrifices. And, you know, what do you mean we're doing this? Well... That's what they say. You ask, how have we despised your name? (laughs) Yeah, give us some evidence. Give us proof. Um, This is a combination of self-righteousness and conviction, speaking. Um, This is a harsh charge from a prophet, and yet they don't think they've been treating the Lord as worthless. Uh, So they want some proof. Show us. And Malachi will explain it. You place defiled food on my altar. But then they respond to that. How have we defiled you? They're making the connections at least. If they were placing defiled food on the altar, they are defiling the Lord because the altar is representing his presence among them and uh, they would know where this is going. They, they can understand what Malachi is saying, but they're they're bucking it every step of the way, um, placing defiled food on the altar. 
Uh, remember that the sacrifices that went on the altar were supposed to be perfect animals, and they were supposed to be healthy animals. They had to be living, viable living animals. That was why there was a rule that you can't sacrifice a newborn lamb because that's not much of a sacrifice. You haven't had to feed it. You haven't had to take care of it. You haven't seen that it grows up and actually is a living creature. Uh, You know, sacrifice it that way. You don't have to do all that. No, they couldn't do that. Uh, And they couldn't bring something that was defiled. It had to be a healthy, pure uh, animal. And if you simply offered a defiled animal on the altar... It showed that uh, you cared nothing about the requirements for the sacrifice, and in that sense you were not paying any attention or giving any credibility to the word of the Lord, which called for pure animals. Uh, That was just an ideal that is not reachable to them. So Malachi explains the problem. You say, how have we defiled you? By saying that the Lord's table is contemptible. It's interesting to note here that uh, Malachi is referring to the high altar as the Lord's table because they would put the animals on there to roast and and cook and um, that was where part of it would be burnt up so the Lord consumed or ate by fire his part and then the animal would be... Uh, Whatever was for the peace offering would be given to the people to eat. So it's like gathering around the table and uh, eating from the offering if that was a peace offering and the Lord would eat his part. So using it as a table. It's funny, in uh, in uh, modern Hebrew, I don't know if you know much about this or not, but when the state of Israel was formed in the 40s, they deliberately tried to make the Hebrew of the Bible the Hebrew of the modern state of Israel. That's not the case with Greek. If you study New Testament Greek and go to Greece, you'll have a surprise. But um, the people who did this, led by David Ben-Gurion, they got tremendous opposition from the black hats, you know, the ultra-Orthodox, because they didn't want the language of the Bible to be the language of sports, the language of the stock market and all those things. And, and they used to ridicule him, you don't have a word for rickshaw. <laughs> yeah. So he'd make one up. But at any rate, um, some of the connections, they tried to stay within the same semantic range. In modern Hebrew, mitzbeach, which is the Hebrew word for an altar, is the modern Hebrew word for the kitchen uh, because that's where you're going to cook the meal and prepare the food or whatever, just exactly what they did at the altar in Israel. So it's kind of fun to see the connections they make with modern technical connections to the biblical language. But the altar um, was considered contemptible to them. Uh, they, um, they treated it as something that was an inconvenience uh, and something that was an unnecessary requirement, and they... Uh, had no respect for it. And he says, when you do that, he says, this is how we know you treat it that way. When you bring blind animals for sacrifice, is that not wrong? When you sacrifice crippled or diseased animals, is that not wrong? Try offering them to your governor. Will he be pleased with you? Will he accept you, says the Lord of armies? 
So here you've got a lot of people, and it's time to go to the sanctuary and make sacrifices to the Lord, you know, the best you have and the firstborn or whatever. And they're coming in with animals that are diseased and crippled and blind and uh, not very, uh, not <laughs> hardly alive, whatever, and uh, offering them to God. I suppose this is just a preview of the modern way of convenience in worship. It was more convenient and more practical and more beneficial to the worshiper, not to God, to get rid of the animals that were worthless. You have a herd, you have flocks, and there are animals there that might be blind or crippled or diseased, and uh, you can't sell them and uh, you can't really spend your time taking care of them, give them to God. He's just going to burn them up anyway, so that solves the problem. And we can clean out our pens and, and get rid of these worthless animals and, uh, and go through the ritual of making a sacrifice to God. Um, when I was growing up, you know, I'm one of these people who grew up in the church. My father was a pastor, we always had in the entranceway of the church the missionary barrel. You might remember one of those along the way. And this was where people could donate things to be sent to the missions. And I remember my father going through and throwing half of it away. He says, this is junk. Um, he says, I wouldn't, I wouldn't send these down there. It'd be an embarrassment. These are old, worn-out tennis shoes, and these are ripped shirts and whatever else. You know, it's good enough for the missionaries. He says they should be going out and buying new things and putting them here in the missionary barrel if they really want to make a an offering that is worthwhile. And there were times, even more recently, when you had great uh, disasters in Latin America. And people sent things, and they, they wrote to the churches in the States saying, you're sending us stuff we can't use. You know, it's, it's, it's worthless. It's just, just one of those things that uh, there's always a more convenient way to be a believer. And yet um, the one who is hurt um, is, of course, the Lord, because you are depriving him of what is due to him. He demands the best. Otherwise, why call it a sacrifice? If you get rid of all the junk in your attic and send the missionaries, that's not a sacrifice. That's called spring cleaning. You know, that's not really what God is looking for. A sacrifice is giving the best and making something. Talk about I surrender all. I mean, this is what you're talking about here with the sacrifice. How would they get away with this? Well, the priests had to be acknowledging and accepting it. They couldn't come into an ordinary sanctuary service if the priests were doing their job and bring in such animals. But the priests are showing respect to persons and uh, not applying the scriptures the way they were supposed to be applied. I was a member of a church once where I didn't stay very long because it was really very corrupt. I mean, without going into details, everything was going on in that church and it was a very... And everybody in the congregation knew. And there were all kinds of things that would have, would have driven anybody out of ministry if they were public. And I was getting ready to change churches, and then the pastor delivered a sermon, and I thought, well, maybe we're going to see a turnaround here, because he preached that Sunday morning 
on the church of Laodicea. And he did an excellent job exegeting the text, verse by verse, and showing the hypocrisy and the conflict of people who thought they were righteous and yet they were wretched and naked and blind and so on. Um, and then I thought, well, maybe maybe this is going to lead to kind of some kind of reforms here in the church. But when he finished the sermon, he said, this was his conclusion, Beloved, <laughs> that's made me nervous, uh, Beloved, this is not true of our church. And he sat down. <laughs> that was it. Talk about needing that congregation. Um, he did. So what Malachi is saying, try paying your taxes this way. Give the governor all the leftovers that you don't want anymore and see if he'll, he'll accept that. that is, that's not going to work. Um, I remember I was re- doing my taxes one year and I was reading the government accounting list and what they spent money for. And they had items listed down there where they were paying $12,000 for a hammer. You know, this is the government spends like crazy. I wanted to send them a hammer instead of my taxes, but, you know, that didn't work. <laughs> but no, if if person is ordinarily working, doesn't see that part of his paycheck, that goes off the top and goes to the government, and, and you get the leftovers. And uh, Malachi is saying, it's not going to work in this country. You try paying your taxes with this kind of junk? No, it won't work. But why do you think it would work with God? Uh, well, because uh, the priests are acknowledging it, probably giving them the blessing for what they bring. So that's the complaint. That's the problem. They have ruined the worship out of their own false uh, approach to the sacrificial system, which was, in effect, an insult to God and contempt for His law and a despising of the whole sacrificial system. So the advice that he gives to them, very simple. Implore God to be gracious to us. Implores, and it's, it's a good translation, I suppose. Literally means to stroke the face, to beseech God, to appeal to God um, in order that he might be gracious. In other words, you are standing on very thin ice here. And you better pray for God's forgiveness and for God's grace um, because with such offerings from your hand, he will not accept you, says the Lord of hosts. And then he adds an additional thing uh, that uh, really is bold. Oh, that one of you would shut the doors of the temple so that you do not light the fire on the altar in vain, for no purpose. It is better not to come to worship than to do it this way. We're not quick to say that. Uh, we want everybody there because we're different than a Israelite temple and we are interested in people who will come and at least hear the gospel. But what Malachi is saying, something very basic to the Old Testament, uh, It isn't that hypocritical worship doesn't count. It does count, but it counts against you. 
And so if you keep bringing these crummy animals, you are piling up sin in your life that will have to be addressed somehow. And if you don't find God's grace and mercy to find forgiveness and change your ways, then uh, God will deal with it. And um, he gives them a couple of choices here, but this is, this is his alternative. Better to stay home and don't kindle the fire on the altar for no purpose, gratuitously, uh, in vain, whatever, because this kind of worship is worthless, and God is going to judge them for it. So the Lord is very clear. I will accept no offering from your hands. My name will be great among the nations, for from the rising of the sun to its setting. The Bible is filled with these poetic expressions. These are, we call them merisms. They are two opposites that mean the totality. From the rising of the sun, that's in the east, to its setting, it's in the west. If rising of the sun is in the morning, and in the setting it's in the evening. Uh, so that what he's really saying is, everywhere and all day long, the nations, the Gentiles, will be worshiping and honoring my name. This has happened before in the prophets, and Malachi is making it even stronger. If God will not be able to get worship from the people of Israel, he will turn to the nations, because they will honor his name. Uh, it's kind of like the Syrophoenician woman that Jesus meets when he's on vacation up by Tyre. And she comes out and cries, Son of David, have mercy on... Uh, she's remembering the old wars between the Israelites and the Canaanites. And Christ tests her face, saying, um, I was only sent to the lost sheep of Israel. And her answer to that is, but even the little dogs will eat the crumbs that fall from the table. <laughs> if the Jews don't want you, we'll take the crumbs. We'll take what they don't want. And the Gentiles, uh, very responsive to the message. And the warning was to Israel, I will turn to the nations if you don't serve me properly. And they didn't. And he did, uh, which is why the nations have been the center of his program. So his name is going to be great. That means that the people in the nations will worship him uh, in, in a rich and loyal form of worship, uh, knowing who he truly is and giving him the honor and the respect and the fear uh, that he deserves. And so that's... That's his warning. You better shut down this temple if you're not going to find God's forgiveness and change your ways. And if you persist in this, I'll turn to the nations. All right? Round two. <laughs> we have to... Prophets like to repeat things. Um, that's why Isaiah says it's line upon line, line upon line, precept upon precept, precept upon precept. It's like, like memorizing Hebrew vocabulary. You keep memorizing, keep going over it until it actually sticks. And if you're going to study the Scriptures, you keep going over it again and again and again, and finally it uh, sinks in. He turns back to them. But as for you, you profane... This, this, you profane it by saying that the Lord's temple is defined, is defiled. In other words, uh, 
they are going to do just the worst possible thing in this practice that can be imaginable if you understand the words that he is using. The whole idea, and Malachi is going to play with these words, holy and profane. Those are antonyms. Those are the opposites. The temple was supposed to be holy. The altar was supposed to be holy. The priests were supposed to be holy. The sanctuary was supposed to be holy. The sacrifice was supposed to be holy. meant that it was set apart to God and was fitting for God. But they have profaned it. Uh, interesting if you should look up the uh, word profane in a good English dictionary, one that actually gives you etymologies, like the American Heritage Dictionary. The etymology of the word profane that we use means outside the temple. Common. Um, I guess you could say common is dirt, but it's just common. Uh, there are vessels and goblets that were put into the sanctuary. They're holy. You can't take them out and eat your meal at home from them. They're set apart to God. If you take them out of the temple, like Belshazzar did and has a beer party with them, he has made them common. He's made them profane. He's desecrated what is holy. I use, I've used this illustration all the time of my teaching, but let me illustrate it. Maybe this will help you get the concept. At home... We have in our closet holy towels. Um, they, they are set apart for company. <laughs> now, if I should come in from, say, cleaning the garage or working in the yard and take one of those holy towels and uh, without completely washing my hands, use it to wipe my hands on, I have desecrated that which is holy. I have treated it as common. I've got rags in the garage I'm supposed to use, but if I do that, I have made something worthless, something profane, something not set apart, something common. I mean, it's that simple. If you're giving a sacrifice to God, it's holy. If you give a crummy animal, that's common, and it's not honoring God, it's profane. And so he is saying to them that they have defiled the Lord's table uh, by, and profaned it. You made it common. It isn't, it isn't any longer special. It isn't any longer something that really is fitting for God because you've just made it like all the pagan altars. Uh, they will put things on their altars just like the Israelites put things on their altars. But God made some very special requirements of what he would accept, and uh, it was to be to be something very special. Uh, it's defiled, and you say of its food, it's contemptible. And he goes a step further. He mocks the priests here with their attitude. You say, what a drudgery. <laughs> Got to go through this service again. We did this last week. Um, I'm getting tired of doing this. So they, what a drudgery. And next word is very hard to translate. Uh, the NIV says you, uh, you sniff at it. I don't think that's a good translation. Uh, you say, what a drudgery. Um, the word means to snort or 
uh, show some kind of a contemptible reaction of disgust. Now, we have to come up with a translation for that. What a drudgery. <clears throat> I'm not going to do this anymore. You know, just just uh, what, a, what an inconvenience to me. Um, let's get through the service because I've got, I've got something else more important to do. My, my uncle was a pastor. He actually was a pastor of the Evangelical United Brethren, but one year he woke up and discovered he was now a Methodist. But they uh, had the large church just outside of Chicago, and uh, he hired a, an assistant one year who was supposed to be helping him with the church, a new seminary graduate. And uh, he would uh, occasionally discover that his assistant was not in the congregation or on the platform, but he was in the back room watching yesterday's game on TV while the service was going on. <laughs> and needless to say, he didn't stay long in that service, in that church. But... Uh, that's you know that's un- unbelievable to some of us, but that's what he's saying here. You you consider that the whole sacrificial service is a waste of time. You got more important things you'd like to do. It's a drudgery. Do we have to go through this again? Um, unfortunately, that is not an isolated event or attitude that you find in ministry. In it's not just true of Malachi's time. That's true of Israel down through the ages. It's true too often of the churches as well. But at any rate, he is saying you you consider it a drudgery. You sniff at it contemptuously, says the Lord of hosts. And then he reiterates, when you bring injured, crippled, diseased animals and offer them as sacrifice... Should I accept them from your hands? This is a key in Malachi. It's always from your hands. This is what your hands produce. This is what you're offering. This is what you're giving. Should I receive them from your hands, says the Lord? That obviously is a rhetorical question. Uh, He's not asking yes or no answer. He's saying, I'm not about to receive them. Why should I receive them from you? Uh, They are worthless. They are completely un unacceptable. Um, The priests wouldn't eat them because the priests are supposed to eat from the sacrifices. Um, That wouldn't meet their needs. But the most important thing is that you're showing the rest of the congregation with the priest's sanction that anything's good enough for God and uh, we'll keep the best for ourselves. Uh, That is not sacrificial worship. Wasn't in Malachi's day. It isn't today. I'll keep everything, the best for myself, and um, leftovers I'll give to God. Uh, No, God gets the first and he gets the best. That is an important principle I mentioned before that is taught in the law. And a good illustration of how this would work. If an Israelite settled in the land and he planted fruit trees... And in a couple of years, the trees began to produce fruit. But the first harvest of the fruit on the trees is not very good. So you have to throw it out because you can't give it to God. It's not good fruit yet. And you can't have it because he gets it first. 
So you get rid of that. And then maybe the second year it's getting better, but it's still not good, so you get rid of it. But then the third year, you've got really lovely apples or other figs or whatever else is there. But now you can't have it because the best and the first has to go to God. And then in the fourth year, you can start reaping the harvest. A very simple thing, but it taught them that selfishness and sacrifice don't work together. Uh, And people would find ways, and the Pharisees were good at this, of finding ways um, not to do their duties within the laws of Israel by reasoning, rationalizing the scriptures, and uh, coming up with ways to get around it. Um, That was always their procedure. So the Lord says, Cursed is the deceiver who has an acceptable male in his flock, but he vows and gives a blemished thing to the Lord. Uh, He's a deceiver. He is, he is pretending to be a devout worshiper. Uh, and he makes this vow, and it really sounds like he's very spiritual. Stand up and give an oath and vow, I'm giving this to the Lord. Kind of like Ananias and Sapphira. And so he's going to give this to the Lord, and uh, yet he's giving a diseased animal while he's got wonderful animals in his pens at home. And... Uh, more than he needs, but he's doing exactly what the rest of them were doing, giving the worst things to God. Um, He is described here as a deceiver. Uh, He's a liar, uh, lying to God, lying to the Holy Spirit, lying to the priest, lying to, to everyone. By the way, he's pretending to be this generous, magnanimous um, giver. And uh, therefore, the prophet Malachi announces a curse on him. Two big words in the book of Malachi besides holy and profane are blessing and cursing. The word blessing in Hebrew means enrichment. Um, It can be used for a gift, but it can also be used for any kind of enrichment. If you go to church and the service is wonderful and lifts your spirit, you'll say, what a blessing. If you go home and uh, you discover you've got an unexpected uh, financial gift in the mail, you'd say, what a blessing. These are all enrichments, and uh, these are what people came to expect from God for his blessings on their life. The word curse here is just the opposite. It means to remove someone from the place of blessing. It means to remove their privileges. And if you start reading into the next message when he's addressing the priests, he says to them, I am going to curse your blessings. That is, all the privileges you have as priests, I'm going to take them away. And you will be, uh, you'll be out. These are very strong words that the prophets use, but... This one who lies to God and tries to uh, ruin the worship with his gift, he receives a curse. And that means he'll be removed from the place of God's blessing. The same will be said of the priests in the next chapter. They will be cursed. But it's interesting when you get into that chapter, he doesn't remove them from the priesthood. 
He simply says that he will make the priests base and low in the eyes of the people. What an, well, that, that's worse than being run out of the priesthood because they're going to be there in the sanctuary, but the whole nation knows they're worthless and they're hardly spiritual enough to handle the service. I find that interesting within the letters to the churches in Revelation as well. He's rebuking most of the churches, and the, the announcement of those letters isn't, I'm going to shut it down, we're going to close that church. No, he's going to remove the lampstand. They will continue as an organization. They will continue as a, quote, as a church. They will have no witness. They will have no light. They will have no ministry because if you're not serving the Lord, proclaiming His Word, walking in His righteousness, uh, doing the things that you're called to do, then uh, there won't be a blessing, and He can't use you. Um, Sometimes He works in spite of you, and some people confuse that for God's blessing. No, it's not really. It's, It's basically that God is going to work through the uh, situation and he will get his glory in spite of us sometimes. So we're dealing with the way God is dealing with people who worship and the way he deals with people who minister. Back to back sermons here. Um, the the priests in Israel had a very clear job description. And it didn't have all the little side effects like uh, mowing the lawn and folding the bulletins and whatever else. It, he just cut right to the quick. It's in the, it's in the Oracle of Moses in Deuteronomy 33 where he discusses the priests in the tribe of Levi. And they had three duties. And I don't think they've changed in, from the time of the priests of Israel to the church today. The first duty of the priest was to teach the scriptures to the people. A priest was a teacher. Uh, Priests, after the time of David, would only be on duty in Jerusalem two weeks out of the year. And the rest of the time, they're all over the land, and they are teachers. And that's what he'll say in chapter 2. The lips of the priest must keep knowledge, and people must be able to find God's word at their mouth. In other words, uh, if they're not teaching the people, if they're not the source of the word of God... Uh, they're not doing what a priest is supposed to do, so they have to be teachers. No room for an ignorant priest. Uh, that uh, that was a real problem down in Israel, Israel problem in the life of the church. Their second ministry was to, it says in, in Deuteronomy, to burn incense. But that, we know, is what the priest did when he went into the holy place and made intercessory prayer. He would take coals off the high altar, bring it in a little censer inside the holy place, put them on the little altar of incense, and then sprinkle the incense on top of the coals so that it would ascend as a sweet aroma to God, grab hold of the horns on the altar, and make intercessory prayers for the people. So you're going to teach the Word, and you're going to pray for the people, And the third thing they had to do is make sure that the atoning sacrifice was always available for people. They always had to be able to get to God through the ministry of the priesthood because they kept the fire burning on the altar. They were making sacrifices at dawn. They were making sacrifices in the evening. Even if nobody was there, they still were doing that. And uh, yet, when there was a service, burnt offerings. 
And so people always had to know that no matter what time of the day or what season it was, they could get to God through the ministry of the priests at the high altar. I don't know that these people here were being taught the word. I don't think the priests were praying for them. I don't think that they were giving the right impression of the sacrifices. They were disqualified from being priests. And so therefore God is going to announce a curse on them. Sacrificial worship was God's design. But if it's God's design, it has to be under God's terms. And he made it very clear that what you give to God has to be the best that you have to offer. That hasn't changed in the New Testament uh, from the Old. That whether you give your time, your money, your talent, um, whatever you happen to give to God, it needs to be the best that you can do. And sometimes it may mean being a little creative. There was a church also in Chicago where there was a medical doctor in the congregation. And he was so struck by the fact that it was so easy to write out a check and put it in the offering plate that he didn't feel like he was really worshiping and serving God just by doing that, kind of like another bill you paid at home, you know, just write out the check. So what he did is every Friday he moved his whole medical practice to the church shut down his offices, and he gave free consultations and checkups and, you know, basic issues to anybody, not just in the church, anybody in the community. The community and the church, kid, people would come in with sick kids, they didn't have money to go to the doctor, Friday, come in here and get help. He wouldn't, of course, do surgeries and things like that, but uh, basically providing that kind of care for people, he said, I, it's one thing I can do. <laughs> he said, I don't, there's a lot of things I can't do, but he says, this I can do. And, uh, and a lot of times we have a good friend in Birmingham who's a medical doctor, and uh, he does the same thing, but he, he goes to Africa with a lot of doctors, and they will spend a month there out of the year. And the people line up for miles to come in to get all kinds of medical treatment. And so they do that all day, and then all evening they preach and teach and, you know, have evangelistic services. And he says, I'm, you know, I'm a doctor, but he says, I love to preach. And he's down there doing all of this. A lot of people do things very creatively, but they try to think of their own life and say, what can I give to God that is really something important and something valuable and and that is going to cost me because sacrificing costs. And so there are all kinds of ways, but God didn't demand all those kinds of things. But a person who really had a spiritual gift of giving would be like Barnabas, selling all of his property and giving all the money to the disciples so they could use. Uh, that's because according to Acts 4, he was filled with the Holy Spirit. Ananias and Sapphira, they were filled by Satan, and they held back. But it wasn't simply that they held back, because Peter says, hey, you didn't have to give anything. But lying to the Holy Spirit, lying to the congregation, and uh, fortunately, I think, for the church, that God brought severe judgment on people 
only once or twice at the early periods of the age. If he kept doing that, I mean, we would have more funerals than services. But uh, it's a warning. And the warning is, this is what God thinks of that. And so we have to learn from that. So Malachi is saying that um, if you don't give God the best, then you're treating the worship of God as something as a drudgery, something that is worthless to you, something that um, you can go and it looks good because you're there as a worshiper and you go through the paces. And, and yet, if God is evaluating, he will, he will point out to us that we didn't do much this time. We didn't sacrifice very much. We didn't, we didn't make much of an effort. Uh, we just take a lot of things for granted. And yet the Bible tells us that we are not our own. We are bought with a price. We're to glorify God with everything they have. And in the Old Testament, it is very clear. When David brought a sacrifice in, he would say, everything that I have and everything that I am came from God. And Moses, in his wonderful sermon in Deuteronomy 8, Sermon on the Manna, uh, if, you want, if you run out of things to preach, just read them, Deuteronomy 8. It's great. But he's saying, you know, I led you through the wilderness and I made you hungry and then I gave you manna to eat so that you would learn that man does not live by bread alone. But you need to be sure that you don't forget God. And when you get into the land and you've got your barns and your crops and your flocks and the money in the bank, don't forget God. And don't say, by my own strength I have done this. But remember who gave you the strength to do that. Because if you forget God, if I could paraphrase it, I'll run you out of the land faster than I did the Canaanites. It's uh, not to forget God, not to forget his benefits, but to serve him with great gratitude and know that whatever you have, he has given to you uh, as, a, as a stewardship um, and to acknowledge that. There's a famous story that the rabbis like to teach that it's kind of like this a little girl goes out into the backyard to her mother's flower bed and she picks a bouquet of flowers and brings them in and gives them to her mother. Some mothers would say, you ruined my flower bed. <laughs> no, a mother who is wise would, would be thanking her and, and be thrilled because the child is thinking of her and doing something for her. And that's the spirit of uh, giving. We think, well, you know, God gave me this and I'll give a portion to him. Yeah, everything he gave us is his. And we're going to see that in the next passage. So we know that we acknowledge that. And in his grace, he says, you can keep it all. I just want a token. I just want a sign that uh, you know it came from me and everything that you have. So you give me the best. And... Um, and I will bless it. But here they weren't. And this is a warning to people of all ages. Father, we are thankful for this prophet Malachi and how he delivered your word to people who were uh, rebellious and disobedient and hard-hearted and self-righteous and yet corrupt to the core. And Lord, I pray that we will see revivals in our churches so that people 
renew their commitment to serve and honor you in what they give and what they do in your name, that the body of Christ would be edified, that Christ himself would be glorified, and that we would be found faithful. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, it's. Am I on? Can you hear me now? Am I on? Am I on? Okay. Here you go, Dan. <laughs> I uh, will take questions now, but I have one. In Malachi 111, mm-hmm. it says. For from the rising of the sun even to the setting, my name will be great among the nations. Mm -hmm. The English Revised Standard translates Goy there as among the Gentiles. Mm -hmm. So in a number of passages in the Old Testament, you have Goy that could either be translated nations or it could be translated Gentiles. Mm -hmm. What guidance... And one such is referring to Israel. And, excuse me? One time Goy refers to Israel. That's right. <laughs> so what guidance do you have contextually in terms of translation for why you would choose nations versus Gentiles? I take them to be synonymous. Okay. If they're not Israelite, they're not Jewish, therefore they're everything else, which is the nations all around Israel, nations in the world. And the term Gentiles, not exactly a biblical term, it just refer, refers to people who are not in the covenant of Israel. Okay, so it's, it's, to some of us, and I think to some people, nation is more of a corporate sense, mm-hmm. whereas Gentile emphasizes more the individual. No, sense. no, not really. Not really. Uh, okay. Gentile, Gentiles would refer to the masses of people wherever they lived in whatever country they're in, and uh, actually, the word nations can uh, also be translated tribes families. So it's just a matter of um, down through the ages of the English Bibles, what would communicate the best to the readers at that time. So when they're talking about nations, it's usually just the plural of uh, peoples, or I hate this expression, but the modern jargon, people group. <laughs> people group. <laughs> people group. Uh, but it's, it's, it's nations. If... Um, in that age, and especially in that part of the world, um, there's always some tribal identity with people. If they're not Israelites, they belong to some tribe, and they would be nations, they would be people, but really just tribes, clans, whatever, uh, but not isolated people. It would always be of a group. So what role, then, would an English dictionary play in translation? Um it plays a good role if you have a good English dictionary that gives you the proper definitions, and you don't um, and you don't read something modern into it that isn't there. You first have to do the biblical word and determine that. For example, you'll often hear somebody preaching on worship, and they'll try to make the point that good definition of worship is worthship. Well, that might be for the English word worship, but that's not what the Hebrew word says. And um, when you go into into the etymology and the meaning of the Hebrew word first, you go to righteousness, 
and you know it's going to mean conforming to the standard. But not it doesn't mean right-wise. So I think if you have first determined the parameters of the meaning of the Hebrew word, then you're looking for the best English word that would convey that. And so you have to check the different words. And I wouldn't just rely upon what a biblical translation does. That's a good start. But if you start looking at different English Bibles and they're using different words, you might have to dig a little deeper and say, you know, here's this Hebrew word. It's got all this range of meanings. How then I find this English word, there isn't going to be a one-on-one correspondence. You'll find a good English word that might do about a half of what that Hebrew word did. And you might have to settle for that in a translation. Or you might find something that is almost almost identical but doesn't quite do everything that it did. Because uh, like you have in Hebrew, you have the word iniquity, avon. It can mean iniquity. It can mean the guilt for the sin. It can mean the punishment for the iniquity. We don't have a word in English that does all that. Mm-hmm. And so when they translate the Bible, they have to choose which one... When God's when Cain says my iniquity is too great to bear, I don't think he's talking about um, I'm a sinner and I've heard this I'm a sinner I feel guilty and God says well you don't have to pay for it I'll say that's not in the text uh, I think he's saying my my punishment is too great because God then comes back and says okay I'll protect you you'll be the you'll be the quintessential pagan living under common grace but not saved. And so we have to we have to know the limits of the word in the text when we're trying to choose the uh, choose the correct English word. I've been on enough translation committees that that often becomes a nightmare because we on the translation committee will send the translation into the editors and they'll change it. They think this makes better sense or this is a nicer English translation. At one time, we got a letter back from the editor saying, don't change that verse. We've all grown to love it. I mean, <laughs> I remember you used to say that you wish you could put in the margin of many of these translations that this is the word of God by a vote of five to four. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. now, I wanted to ask that because a lot of times... Pastors and exegetes don't think about the English word that they're using, and that's one thing I learned from from Alan in Word Studies course, a fabulous course that that he's taught over the years, is the importance of correct of, of precisely choosing to the best you can the English word, which means you have to have good English dictionaries and you have to spend time in the English words as much as you do in the Hebrew words. And that's something that a lot of guys just gloss over. Or you look in a lexicon and you see three or four word meanings, you pick the one you like the most. (laughs) But those are usually words that are the most common ways in which that Hebrew word is translated into English and may not be the best way to translate it into English. So, Yeah, we have to work with approximations. But keep in mind that a, a translation of the Bible you're using is a commentary. It's the most abbreviated commentary you'll have, but when they choose a word, uh, and that, uh, and maybe it, it may not be the word only; it might be the punctuation. Like uh, in Psalm 121, the King James said, "I lift up my eyes to the hills," and then it has a relative pronoun from whence comes my help. And if you go back into the history of preaching the Psalms, you had all kinds of sermons on the help that comes from the hills. 
But that pronoun from whence is interrogative. It's not relative. I lift my eyes to the hills. He's going on the trip to Jerusalem. And he wants to know, where's my help coming from? And the answer is, it comes from the Lord. But uh, a sermon on help from the hills isn't really what was intended. So well, I've always thought that Psalm 31, 1 was, was mispunctuated, that you know, a, a godly woman who can find, who can find my wallet, find my keys, <laughs> find my glasses. Yeah. Okay. I, any, I, had any, a, any? I had a student, a woman student once, and her favorite verse was, if any man will come after me, let him. <laughs> okay. Dan has a Thank you, Dr. Ross. Do you see any significance in the fact that when he's indicting the Jews, he does so all involving a blood sacrifice, uh, the lamb, defiled, lame, blind. But when he talks about the Gentiles, the nations, it's a grain offering, a non-blood sacrifice. Would this be, and I wouldn't go so far, so far as to say prophetic of our age today, but it is a type of our age today. Would you see anything significant in that? Uh, why is he just using the grain offering? Yeah, right, a non-blood offering. Yeah. But why? Well, because maybe he's looking ahead to the church. I mean, not that is prophetic, but it could be type. He's looking ahead to the communion. Well, but I think that... Uh, I mean, the sacrifice, depending on what the purpose of the sacrifice is, because Israelites would bring non-bloody sure. sacrifices right. as well as the bloody. And so he's just using the general terms for the animals. But when he talks about the nations will honor his name, he isn't giving any details of how they're going to worship. He's just saying they will honor my name, and that would mean they will obey my word, they will follow me. So I don't think he's restricting their sacrifice to just being... Just a grain? You don't think there's a restriction to no. the grain offering or an no. elimination of a blood offering no, for the nation? No, I don't think so. He, it's a very general statement. I'll turn to the Gentiles. At least they'll give me honor. Okay. But I, if, there's other passages where um, in the prophets they talk about how the nations will come, even in their day... And uh, they will celebrate the peace of Pas- Passover and the right. and the feast of Tabernacles and whatever. So I don't I don't see that uh, not here in this passage. It's just there are people out there who will honor me. Okay. Uh, you're not honoring me, but he okay. doesn't give details. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Any other any other questions? Got one down here, and then Will, and then we need to. We're already past time. But. Mine's quick. You said use a good English dictionary. Which one would you recommend? Which what now? Which English dictionary would you... Ah, the American Heritage Dictionary. Thank you. It has a very, very good index on the back of Indo-European roots for the words we use. And um, the, you'll have a problem with it. In the Modern Language Association, they they concluded that the reason that English is in such sad shape today is because Webster's sold and the American Heritage Dictionary didn't. Because Webster's is always changing to how people use words. The American Heritage Dictionary is always calling people back to this is what these words meant. And uh, the British are much better at this than the Americans. The British very, very... I mean. Just studying over there, you know, I say, well, I'm going to write, first in the chapter, I'm going to write on the methodology. And I said, no, you're not. 
Methodology is the study of methods. <laughs> it's so precise. And, um, and the, the translators of the King James were very precise with the knowledge that they had. But they didn't have enough knowledge because it was done so long ago. And uh, we keep trying to come out with translations that are, are both more accurate for the Hebrew and the Greek and the Aramaic, but also uh, we have to keep in mind how they're going to be understood by people. And, uh, and every once in a while you'll have to say that, uh, that that's the least of our concerns. For example, um, John says that Jesus is the only begotten Son. NIV says God's unique Son. Unique would communicate, but it's not right. Unique says nothing about his deity. Because the word begotten means that he shares the nature of his Father, which means he's divine and eternal. And that's why John says there's only one of those, monogenes. We have the nature of God, but we're adopted. But Jesus is right. So to take away only begotten, uh, while you might say, but they don't quite understand that figure, well, teach it, you know, rather than take it out. Um, unique just says uh, he's unique, but it doesn't say he's divine. doesn't say he's God. Uh, and, uh, and a lot of people would be very offended with that anyway because the Nicene Creed is so clear. He is begotten, not made. That, I don't think you could say it any better. <clears throat> but we have to, there's a delicate balance. We want to get exactly what the word means. And if we can do it in a way that people will be able to understand it, that's the wish. But really, in reading the Bible, even if they study an English Bible, they really need some Bible study helps, and they really need to compare English translations to see what's going on. And uh, we may not be able to find an, a word that is well understood by people. There was an article not too long ago said there were 600,000 words in the English language and the average American uses 25 of them most of the time. <laughs> and, I mean, that's what you're dealing with. So you've got words in the Bible. They're, you know, some of them are multi-syllable words and technical words. But, um, you know, it's it's the precision that you're looking for. And uh, sometimes you'll just have to leave the translation with the technical word, and then when you're teaching it, to take a few minutes to kind of explain it and give, the, give all the nuances of it and what he has in mind here. It's exposition is, um, and Bible study is, it's not just simply getting a Bible, reading a verse, and, you know, going on your way. It's, it's, it's a little bit of study. And... Uh, especially when you get into books that are, that are using more technical language like uh, Romans and Hebrews and, and Isaiah, whatever. Isaiah really knows how to throw the Hebrew around. And you get a lot of expressions in there. And just because you say, well, maybe people won't understand this figure. Well, they do understand figures of speech because most of the English language uses figures of speech. Um, I mean, you wouldn't have country western music if you didn't. Uh, <laughs> but it's... But it, they're just not comfortable with it in the Bible. And the disciples weren't either. You know, they say to Jesus, we don't understand you. And he explains it. And he says, oh, now we know you're not using fingers. Figures, we know what you mean. Uh, they, you know, we're going to see Lazarus because he's asleep. And the disciples say, well, he'll wake up. <laughs> Jesus, he's dead. You know, <laughs> they, uh, 
that you're just going to have that problem in the communication. And uh, the more people study the scriptures and realize that there are passages that are going to need a little bit of digging, a little bit of clarification, that's why we're there, and to help them. And uh, there are some translations that are very good, but if you get into some of them, like, uh, say, the message, um, that translation, more often than not, is really not even close to what the uh, the text says. But... Uh, People say, well, I like it because it's so easy. Well, yeah, it's the cookies on the lowest shelf. Okay? Or in the gutter. Um, yeah, that's my version I love to hate. <laughs> All right, well, we are out of time. We're going to come back in a little over 20 minutes. We'll go, we're off time a little bit, but the next session runs uh, has lunch at the end, so we can fudge that a little bit, and that will be our last session with Alan before he has to go to the airport. So uh, let's take our break now, and we'll come back in about 20 to 25 minutes. <laughs>